0: chapter one part one of history of the civil war eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five by james ford rhodes this librivox recording is in the public domain one part one the great factor in the destruction of slavery was the election of abraham lincoln as president in eighteen sixty by the republican party who had declared against the extension of slavery into the territories the territories were those divisions of the national domain which lacked as yet the necessary qualifications for statehood through insufficient population or certain other impediments they were under the control of congress and the president the republicans were opposed to any interference with slavery in the states where it already existed but they demanded freedom for the vast unorganized territory west of the missouri river how the election of lincoln was brought about i have already related at length in my history of the united states from the compromise of eighteen fifty to the final restoration of home rule of the south in eighteen seventy seven and more briefly in the first of my oxford lectures it was a sectional triumph inasmuch as lincoln did not receive a single vote in ten out of the eleven states that afterwards seceded and made up the confederate states charleston south carolina an ultra pro-slavery city and eager for secession rejoiced equally with the northern cities over the election of lincoln but the charleston crowds were cheering for a southern confederacy herein were they supported by the people of south carolina generally who saw in the election of lincoln an attack on their cherished institution of slavery and cared no longer for political union with the people who held them to be living in the daily practice of evil they regarded their slaves as property and believed that they had the same constitutional right to carry that property into the common territory as the northern settlers had to take with them their property in horses and mules lincoln as president would deny them that privilege in other words he would refuse them equality in his speeches he had fastened a stigma upon slavery believing it wrong he must oppose it wherever he had the power and he certainly would limit its extension could a free people they asked have a more undoubted grievance were they not fired by the spirit of seventeen seventy six and ought they not to strike before any distinct act of aggression revolution was a word on every tongue the crisis was like one described by Thucydides, when the meaning of words had no longer the same relation to things reckless daring was held to be loyal courage prudent delay was the excuse of a coward moderation was the disguise of unmanly weakness frantic energy was the true quality of a man the people of south carolina amid great enthusiasm demanded almost with one voice that their states secede from the federal union the authorities promptly responded a convention duly called and chosen passed an ordinance of secession which was termed a declaration of independence of the state of south carolina this act in view of the south carolinians and of the people of the other cotton states was based on the state's reserved right under the compact entitled the constitution martial music bonfires pistol firing fireworks illuminations cries of joy and exaltation greeted the passage of the ordinance which seemed to the people of charleston to mark the commencement of a revolution as glorious as that of seventeen seventy six Meanwhile, the United States Senate, through an able and representative committee of Thirteen, was at work on a compromise in the spirit of earlier days. In 1820, according to Jefferson, the knell of the Union had been rung. The slavery question, said he, like a fire-bell in the night awakened and filled me with terror. But then the Missouri Compromise had saved the Union again in eighteen fifty when the south and north were in bitter opposition on the same issue of slavery and threats of dissolution of the union were freely made by southern men the controversy was ended by clay's compromise and now in eighteen sixty the people of the northern and of the border slave states ardent for the preservation of the union believed that congress could somehow compose the dispute as it had done twice before the senate committee of thirteen at once took up the only expedient that could be expected to retain the six remaining cotton states in the union this was the crittenden compromise called after its author a senator from kentucky and the portion of it on which union or disunion turned was the article regarding territorial slavery crittenden proposed as a constitutional amendment that the old missouri compromise line of thirty six degrees thirty feet should serve as the boundary between slavery and freedom in the territories north of it slavery should be prohibited south of it protected as phrased the article was satisfactory to the northern democratic and border slave state senators who together made up six of the committee the two senators from the cotton states would have accepted it had the understanding been clear that protection to slavery was to apply to all territory acquired in the future south of the compromise line the five republican senators opposed the territorial article and as it had been agreed that any report to be binding must have the assent of a majority of these five they defeated in committee this necessary provision of the compromise william h seward one of the thirteen the leader of the republicans in congress and the prospective head of lincoln's cabinet would undoubtedly have assented to this article could he have secured lincoln's support but Lincoln, though ready to compromise every other matter in dispute, was inflexible on the territorial question, that is to say as regarded territory which might be acquired in the future. He could not fail to see that the territories which were a part of the United States in 1860 were, in Webster's words, dedicated to freedom by an ordinance of nature and the will of God and he was willing to give the slaveholders an opportunity to make a political slave state out of new mexico which was south of the missouri compromise line but he feared that if a parallel of latitude should be recognized by solemn exactment as the boundary between slavery and freedom filibustering for all south of us and making slave states of it would follow in spite of us a year will not pass he wrote further till we should have to take cuba as a condition upon which they the cotton states will stay in the union lincoln therefore using the powerful and direct influence of the president-elect caused the republican senators to defeat the crittenden compromise in the committee who were thus forced to report that they could not agree upon a plan of adjustment then crittenden proposed to submit his plan to a vote of the people so strong was the desire to preserve the union that had this been done the majority would probably have been overwhelming in favor of the compromise and although only an informal vote it would have been an instruction impossible for congress to resist crittenden's resolution looking to such an expression of public sentiment was prevented from coming to a vote in the senate by the quiet opposition of republican senators the last chance of retaining the six cotton states in the union was gone between january ninth and february one eighteen sixty one the conventions of mississippi Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas passed ordinances of secession. Early in February, the Confederate States was formed. Delegates from six cotton states assembled in Montgomery, and proceeding in an orderly manner, formed a government, the cornerstone of which rested upon the great truth that slavery is the Negro's natural and normal condition they elected jefferson davis president and adopted a constitution modelled on that of the united states but departing from that instrument in its express recognition of slavery and the right of secession when lincoln was inaugurated president on march fourth he confronted a difficult situation elected by a union of thirty-three states he had lost before performing an official act the allegiance of seven believing that no state can in any way lawfully get out of the union without the consent of the others and that it is the duty of the president to run the machine as it is he had to determine on a line of policy toward the states that had constituted themselves the southern confederacy but any such policy was certain to be complicated by the desirability of retaining in the union the border slave states of maryland virginia kentucky and missouri as well as north carolina tennessee and arkansas whose affiliations were close with the four border states all seven were drawn towards the north by their affection for the union and towards the south by the community of interest in the social system of slavery one of lincoln's problems then was to make the love for the union outweigh the sympathy with the slave-holding states that had seceded it is difficult to see how he could have bettered the policy to which he gave the keynote in his inaugural address i hold he said that the union of these states is perpetual physically speaking we cannot separate the power confided to me will be used to hold occupy and possess the property and places belonging to the government this last declaration though inevitable for a president in his position outweighed all his words of conciliation and rendered of no avail his closing pathetic appeal to his dissatisfied fellow-countrymen not to bring civil war on the country during the progress of the secession the forts arsenals custom-houses and other property of the federal government within the limits of the cotton states were taken possession of by these states and in due time all this property was turned over to the southern confederacy so that on march fourth all that lincoln controlled was four military posts of which fort sumter commanding charleston was much the most important since the very beginning of the secession movement the eyes of the north had been upon south carolina for many years she had been restive under the bonds of the union her chief city charleston had witnessed the disruption of the democratic national convention and the consequent split in the party which made certain the republican success of eighteen sixty that in turn had led to the secession of the state and the formation of the southern confederacy fort sumter had fixed the attention of the northern mind by an occurrence in december eighteen sixty major anderson with a small garrison of united states troops had occupied fort moultrie but convinced that he could not defend that fort against any attack from charleston he had secretly on the night after christmas withdrawn his force to fort sumter a much stronger post next morning when the movement was discovered charleston fumed with rage whilst the north on hearing the news was jubilant and made a hero of anderson Lincoln recognized the importance of holding Fort Sumter, but he also purposed to use all means short of the compromise of his deepest convictions to retain the border slave states and North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas in the Union. The action of these three turned upon Virginia, whose convention was in session, ready to take any action which the posture of affairs seemed to demand. The fundamental difficulty now asserted itself. To hold Fort Sumter was to Lincoln a bounden duty, but to the Virginians it savored of coercion, and coercion in this case meant forcing a state which had seceded back into the Union. If an attempt was made to coerce a state, Virginia would join the Southern Confederacy. The Confederate States now regarded the old Union as a foreign power whose possession of a fort within their limits flying the American flag was a daily insult they attempted to secure sumter by an indirect negotiation with the washington government and were encouraged by the assurances of seward lincoln's secretary of state and most trusted counselor had the president known of seward's intimation which was almost a promise that sumter would be evacuated he would have been greatly perturbed and would have called a halt in the negotiations to the end that the southern commissioners be undeceived on april first he was further troubled by a paper some thoughts for the president's consideration which seward had privately submitted to him as an outline of the fit policy to be pursued this was briefly the evacuation of fort sumter the reinforcement of the other posts in the south a demand at once for explanations from spain and france and if they were not satisfactory a call of a special session of congress to declare war against those two nations also explanations to be sought from great britain and russia with that same rash disregard of his chief and blind reliance on his own notions of statecraft which he had shown in his negotiations with justice campbell the intermediary between himself and the southern commissioners who had been sent to washington by davis he gave the president a strong hint that the execution of this policy should be devolved upon some member of the cabinet and that member himself the proposed foreign policy was reckless and wholly unwarranted our relations with these four powers were entirely peaceful to use seward's own words less than three months before there is not a nation on earth that is not an interested admiring friend seward had got it into his head that if our nation should provoke a foreign war the cotton states would unite in amity with the north and like brothers fight the common foe under the old flag lincoln of course saw that the foreign policy proposed was wild and foolish but ignored it in his considerate reply to some thoughts for the president's consideration he kept the existence of the paper rigidly a secret he did not demand the secretary's resignation he had for him no word of sarcasm or reproach the president submitted to another drain on his time and strength in the persistent scramble for office the grounds halls stairways closets of the white house wrote seward are filled with office seekers and lincoln said i seem like one sitting in a palace assigning apartments to importunate applicants while the structure is on fire and likely soon to perish in ashes when he ought to have been able to concentrate his mind on the proper attitude to the seceding states he was hampered by the ceaseless demands for a lucrative recognition from his supporters and by the irrational proposals of the chief of his cabinet the great problem now was sumter what should be done about it on the day after his inauguration the president was informed that anderson believed a reinforcement of twenty thousand men necessary for the defense of the post after being transported to the neighborhood by sea they must fight their way through to the fort for the south carolinians had been steadily at work on the islands in charleston harbor erecting batteries and strengthening the forts which bore on sumter moreover anderson's provisions would not last beyond the middle of april general scott the head of the army advised the evacuation of sumter a logical step in the course of action toward the south which he and other men of influence had advocated and which he expressed in the pertinent words wayward sisters depart in peace at the cabinet meeting of march fifteenth the president asked his advisers if it be possible to provision fort sumter is it wise to attempt it Four agreed with seward saying no only two gave an affirmative answer lincoln undoubtedly had moments of thinking that the fort must be evacuated with his eye upon virginia whose convention he hoped might adjourn without action he may have promised one of her representatives that he would withdraw anderson provided the virginia convention always a menace of secession while it continued to sit would adjourn Cinedier. the evidence is too conflicting to justify a positive assertion but if such a proposal were made it was never transmitted to and acted upon by the convention in the final decision the sentiment of the north had to be taken into account to abandon sumter would seem to indicate that a peaceful separation would follow that the principle of the sovereignty of the states and secession had triumphed finally with increasing support in his cabinet lincoln came to a wise decision reinforcement from a military point of view was impracticable to reach the fort the north might have to fire the first shot but as a political measure he decided to send bread to anderson so that sumter would not have to be evacuated from lack of food in accordance with his previous promise he sent word to the governor of south carolina of his intention beauregard commander of the confederate troops at charleston who in company with the governor heard the formal notification telegraphed it to the confederate secretary of war at montgomery receiving two days later april tenth the order to demand the evacuation of fort sumter and if this was refused to proceed to reduce it the demand was made and when anderson had written his refusal to comply with it he observed to the confederate aides the bearers of beauregard's note if you do not batter the fort to pieces about us we shall be starved out in a few days beauregard acting with caution transmitted this remark to montgomery where equal caution not to precipitate hostilities was shown in the reply do not desire needlessly to bombard fort sumter if major anderson will state the time at which he will evacuate Sumter." You are authorized thus to avoid the effusion of blood. Evacuation was redemanded by Beauregard's aides at three quarters of an hour after midnight of April 11th. This was again refused, but Anderson wrote, I will evacuate Fort Sumter by noon on the fifteenth instant, should I not receive prior to that time controlling instructions from my government or additional supplies. The aides considered these terms manifestly futile and acting in accordance with the letter of their instructions they gave the order to fort johnson to open fire the first shell was fired at half-past four on the morning of april twelfth this shot the signal for the bombardment to begin caused a profound thrill throughout the united states and in point of fact it inaugurated four years of civil war the bombardment was unnecessary sumter might have been had without it Beauregard was needlessly alarmed over the relief expedition that was bringing bread to Anderson. He feared a descent upon the South Carolina coast by the United States Fleet, then lying at the entrance of the harbor, for the supposed purpose of reinforcing Fort Sumter. One of his aides reported that, Four large steamers are plainly in view standing off the bar. The people in Charleston thought that there were six men of war in the offing in connection with the general alarm on shore it is interesting to note the actual mishaps of the relief expedition this was intended to consist of four warships three steam tugs and the merchant steamer baltic the baltic with g v fox who had command of the expedition on board arrived off charleston one hour and a half before the bombardment began but found there only one warship another arrived at seven in the morning but without the powhatan the most important of the warships and the one carrying the equipment necessary for the undertaking nothing could be accomplished and no attempt was made to provision the fort administrative inefficiency seward's meddlesomeness and a heavy storm at sea conjoined to cause the failure of the expedition Fox and his companions watched the bombardment chafing at their powerlessness to render their brothers in arms any assistance before leaving sumter boregard's aides notified anderson in writing that in an hour their batteries would open on the fort anderson and his officers went through the casemates where the men were sleeping waked them told them of the impending attack and of his decision not to return the fire until after daylight the first shell was from fort johnson at half past four it rose high in air and curving in its course burst almost directly over the fort the next shot came from cummings point fired it is said by a venerable secessionist from virginia who had long awaited the glory of this day the official account does not confirm the popular impression but the lieutenant colonel in command wrote that his men were greatly incited by the enthusiasm and example of this old virginian who was at one of the cummings point batteries during the greater part of the bombardment after cummings point all the batteries opened in quick succession Sumter was surrounded by a circle of fire. Meanwhile, the men in the fort, alive to the novelty of the scene, watched the shot and shell directed at them, until, realizing the danger of exposure, they retired to the bomb proofs to await the usual roll call and order for breakfast. Having no more bread, they ate pork and damaged rice. At seven o'clock, Anderson gave the order, and Sumter discharged his first gun at Cummings Point, following up this shot with a vigorous fire an hour and a half later sumter opened upon moultrie and from that time a steady and continuous fire between the two was kept up throughout the day for the people of charleston who gathered on the housetops and thronged to the wharves and to their favourite promenade the battery this artillery duel was a mighty spectacle they had lost all love for the union they hated the american flag somewhat as the venetians hated the austrian and though apprehensive of danger to their husbands sons and brothers they rejoiced that the time was drawing near when the enemy should no longer hold a fort commanding their harbor and city in the early afternoon the fire of sumter slackened cartridges were lacking although the six needles in the fort were kept steadily employed until all the extra clothing of the companies all coarse paper and extra hospital sheets had been used after dark, Sumter stopped firing. The Confederate batteries continued to throw shells, though at longer intervals. As during the dark and stormy night, it was almost confidently expected that the United States fleet would attempt to land troops upon the islands or to throw men into Fort Sumter by means of boats, there was ceaseless vigilance on Morris and Sullivan's islands. Early on Saturday morning, April 13, the bombardment was renewed. The men in the fort ate the last of the damaged rice with pork but they sprang briskly to their work fort sumter opened early and spitefully and paid a special attention to fort moultrie wrote moultrie's commander soon hot shot from moultrie and other batteries set the officers quarters on fire the powder magazine was in danger anderson ordered fifty barrels removed and distributed around in the casemates the magazine doors to be closed and packed with earth as in the meantime the wooden barracks had taken fire endangering the powder in the casemates he commanded that all but five barrels should be thrown into the sea at one o'clock the flagstaff was struck and fell and the fallen flag though soon hoisted again together with the smoke and the flames gave the confederates reason to believe that anderson was in distress an aide under a white flag was dispatched to him from cummings point three more from the city by beauregard negotiations followed resulting in honourable terms i marched out of the fort sunday afternoon the fourteenth instant reported anderson with colours flying and drums beating bringing away company and private property and saluting my flag with fifty guns in this momentous battle no man on either side was killed as compared with the military writing of two years later the crudity of the contemporary correspondence and reports is grimly significant they told of the work of boys learning the rudiments of war boys who would soon be seasoned veterans wise in the methods of destruction a strenuous schooling this and the beginning of it was the artillery duel in charleston harbor beauregard's aides assumed too great a responsibility in giving the order to fire the first shot they should have referred anderson's reply to their chief there can be no doubt that the confederate states would have obtained peacefully on monday what they got by force on sunday if beauregard had had anderson's last response he would unquestionably have waited to ask montgomery for further instructions the presence of the united states fleet was of course disquieting yet the danger from this source even as exaggerated in beauregard's mind could be averted quite as well by acting on the defensive as by the bombardment of fort sumter but south carolina was hot for possession of the fort and the aides who gave the order that precipitated hostilities were swayed by the passion of the moment in april eighteen sixty one war was undoubtedly inevitable the house divided against itself could not stand the irrepressible conflict had come to a head words were a salve no longer under the circumstances it was fortunate for lincoln that the south became the aggressor davis's elaborate apology and the writing inspired by it could never answer the questions put by northern to southern soldiers when they met under a flag of truce or in the banter between confederates and federals when opportunities offered who began the war who struck the first blow who battered the walls of fort sumter at one stamp of his foot the president called the whole nation to arms wrote henry adams in eighteen sixty one while in washington he referred to the proclamation asking for seventy-five thousand volunteers whose first service would probably be to repossess the forts places and property which have been seized from the union lincoln wrote this on the sunday when anderson marched out of sumter april fourteenth and following closely the act of february twenty eighth seventeen ninety five his authority he called forth that number of militia apportioned among twenty-seven states to suppress in the seven cotton states combinations beyond the ordinary course of judicial proceedings and he summoned congress to meet on july fourth in special session in the particulars communicated by the war department to the several governors the time of service was fixed at three months but this represented in no way the president's opinion as to the probable duration of the war he was simply following the Act of seventeen ninety five, which provided that the militia could be held to service for only thirty days after the next meeting of Congress. After two days full of indignant outbursts at the insult to the flag, the people of the North read the President's call for troops. "That first gun at Sumter," wrote Lowell, "brought all the free States to their feet as one man." "The heather is on fire," said George Tickner. "I never before knew what a popular excitement can be. At the North, there never was anything like it. Governors, legislatures, wherever these were in session, and private citizens acted in generous cooperation. Men forgot that they had been Republicans or Democrats. The partisan was sunk in the patriot. Washington was supposed to be in danger of capture by the Southern troops flushed with their victory at Sumter. Armed and equipped soldiers were needed for its defense. The 6th Massachusetts was the first regiment to respond, leaving Boston on April 17 and arriving in Baltimore two days later. The only approach by rail to Washington was through Baltimore, where the strong feeling for secession was vented in threats that northern troops, bent on the invasion of the South, would not be permitted to pass through its streets. The colonel of the 6th, being informed in Philadelphia of the situation, timed his arrival in Baltimore for the morning of April 19th here a transfer was usually made by means of horses drawing the passenger cars through the streets from the philadelphia to the washington station a mile distant where a change was made to the cars of the baltimore and ohio railroad which owned the forty miles of single track to the nation's capital seven companies were thus driven rapidly through the city meanwhile an angry mob had collected torn up the railroad and erected a barricade to dispute the passage of the rest of the regiment Informed of this, the captains of the four remaining companies decided that they must march to the station, but before they had started, up came the mob, carrying a secession flag and threatening that if an attempt were made to march through the streets, every white nigger of them would be killed. The captain of whom the command devolved gave the order to march, a policeman leading the way. As the soldiers stepped forward, they received a volley of brickbats and paving-stones from the mob a hundred yards farther on they came to a bridge which had been partially demolished we had to play hopscotch to get over it said the captain the order double quick was then given which led the mob to believe that the soldiers either had no ammunition or dared not use it in their growing rage they fired pistol shots into the ranks and one soldier fell dead the captain gave the order fire a number of the mob fell the mayor of baltimore arrived and placed himself at the head of the column the mob grew bolder he wrote and the attack became more violent various persons were killed and wounded on both sides as his presence failed to allay the tumult the mayor left the head of the column but the four companies marched on fighting their way through their comrades aided by the city marshal with fifty policemen who covered their rear in the Baltimore and Ohio cars, with the blinds closed, the regiment received a volley of stones, which so infuriated one of the soldiers that he fired and killed a prominent citizen, a mere looker on. Finally the train got away and reached Washington late in the afternoon. Of the regiment, four had been killed and thirty six wounded. The casualties in the mob were larger. In Baltimore the excitement was intense. The streets are red with Maryland blood are the marshal's words secessionists and southern sympathizers were rampant stifling the union sentiment of the city they carried everything with a high hand and dictated the action of the constituted authorities the excitement is fearful send no more troops here is the joint dispatch of the governor of maryland and the mayor of baltimore to the president so great was the commotion that a part of the state and city military was called out citizens volunteered and after being more or less adequately furnished with arms were enrolled for the purpose of defense under the direction of the board of police in monument square a mass meeting assembled whose sentiment was decidedly opposed to any attempt at coercion of the confederate states apprehending a severe fight and bloodshed if more northern troops attempted to pass through baltimore the mayor and city marshal ordered the burning of certain bridges on the philadelphia wilmington and baltimore railroad the line to philadelphia and on the northern central the line to harrisburg three bridges on each railroad were burned thus completely severing the rail communications with the north the seven days since the evacuation of sumter had been crowded with events of a deeply ominous character on april seventeenth the virginia convention sitting in secret had passed an ordinance of secession an act which became known to the authorities in washington on the following day as a rejoinder to lincoln's call for seventy-five thousand troops jefferson davis by proclamation invited applications for letters of marque and reprisal against the merchant marine of the united states the president retorted april nineteenth by proclaiming a blockade of southern ports from south carolina to texas inclusive and declaring that privateers acting under the pretended authority of the confederate states would be treated as pirates on the eighteenth the united states commander at harper's ferry in virginia deeming his position untenable abandoned it after demolishing the arsenal and burning the armory building on the twentieth the gosport navy yard was partially destroyed by the union forces and left to the possession of the virginians on the same day robert e lee who was esteemed by scott the ablest officer next to himself in the service and who had been unofficially offered the active command of the union army resigned his commission thus indicating that he had decided to cast his lot with the south the gravity of the situation was heightened by the severance of communications between the national capital and the north as a result of the trouble in baltimore on sunday night april twenty first the telegraph ceased to be available the only connection the government now had with its loyal territory and people was by means of private couriers these made their way with difficulty through maryland where for the moment an unfriendly element prevailed correct information was difficult to get and rumors of all sorts filled the air the government and citizens alike were apprehensive of an attack on the capital they feared that beauregard's south carolina army would be transported north as fast as the railroads could carry it and reinforced in richmond by virginia troops would easily take washington preparations were made to withstand a siege panic seized the crowds of office-seekers driving them northwards many secessionist citizens fearing that the whole male population of the city would be impressed for its defense left for the south washington wrote general scott on april twenty second is now partially besieged threatened and in danger of being attacked on all sides in a day or two or three the arrival of the eighth massachusetts and seventh new york at annapolis who had finished their journey to that point by water prompted the governor to telegraph to the president advising that no more troops be ordered or allowed to pass through maryland and he suggested that lord lyons the english minister be requested to act as mediator between the contending parties of our country john hay then one of the president's private secretaries has given in his diary a graphic account of these days of the novel scene of the sixth massachusetts quartered in the capitol he wrote the contrast was very painful between the gray-haired dignity that filled the senate chamber when i saw it last and the present throng of bright-looking yankee boys the most of them bearing the signs of new england rusticity in voice and manner scattered over the desks chairs and galleries some loafing many writing letters slowly and with plough hardened hands or with rapid glancing clerky fingers while Groh, representative from pennsylvania later speaker of the house stood patient by the desk and franked for everybody the town is full to-night april twentieth of feverish rumors about a meditated assault upon the city this morning april twenty first we mounted the battlements of the executive mansion and the ancient lincoln took a long look down the bay troops were expected to arrive via fort monroe chesapeake bay and the potomac river it was a water-hall a telegram intercepted on its way to baltimore states that our yankees eight massachusetts and new yorkers seventh new york have landed at annapolis april twenty second weary and footsore but very welcome they will probably greet us to-morrow housekeepers here are beginning to dread famine flour has made a sudden spring to eighteen dollars a barrel the president was keenly alive to the importance of holding the capital and feared greatly for its safety as tuesday the twenty-third passed and no soldiers came he paced the floor of the executive office in restless anxiety looking out of the window down the potomac for the long-expected boats thinking himself alone he exclaimed in tones of anguish why don't they come why don't they come that same day had brought a mail from new york three days old containing newspapers which told that the uprising of the north continued with growing strength and unbounded enthusiasm that the seventh new york regiment had already departed and that troops from rhode island were on the way next day april twenty fourth wrote hay was one of gloom and doubt everybody seems filled with a vague distrust and recklessness the idea seemed to be reached by lincoln when chatting with the volunteers six massachusetts this morning he said i don't believe there is any north the seventh regiment is a myth Rhode island is not known in our geography any longer you are the only northern realities meanwhile the seventh new york and eight massachusetts were marching to annapolis junction where they found a train which took them quickly to washington the seventh regiment arrived first april twenty fifth forming as soon as they left the cars they marched up pennsylvania avenue to the white house to the people who noted their military bearing and to the president who reviewed them they were a goodly sight their arrival indicated that the route from the loyal north to its capital was open that other regiments were on the way soon to arrive and that washington was safe it was not until may ninth however that northern troops attempted to pass through baltimore Coming from Perryville in transports and landing under the guns of a revenue steamer, they were then carried in cars under ample police protection through South Baltimore. They were not molested. Four days later, and twenty-four after the severance of communication, the first train from Philadelphia arrived at the capital, and shortly afterwards regular railroad communication with the northern cities for passengers as well as for the military was re-established. End of chapter 1, part 1